Welcome to episode 250 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was engineered on Saturday, 18th of July, 2020. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at www.thefredcast.com. I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and all sorts of other information, please visit our website at www.the-spokesmen.com. And now, here are the spokesmen. For this our 250th episode, the Spokesman Cycling Podcast, becomes the Spokesman Parking Podcast. As you'll soon hear, the storage of cars has much more impact on our lives, including our cycling lives, than most folks imagine. I'm Carlton Reed, and on today's show, I'm talking to a bottom-feeding Yoda who rode through the 1970s American bike boom without knowing it was even happening. Donald Shoup is the Distinguished Research Professor of Urban Planning at UCLA and author of the groundbreaking 2005 book The High Cost of Free Parking. Now, studying parking may sound a bit dry, But, as Donald has shown with his groundbreaking city-shaping research, the space we devote to storing big lumps of metal is simply staggering and often deeply unfair financially, spatially and socially. Donald's many fans, uh, they call themselves the Schuppistas, know that he isn't your normal everyday academic. He's retired, but is still teaching. His personal website is shoopdog.com, and the connection to rapper Snoop Dogg isn't just a play on words, both hail from Long Beach, California. And there can't be many academics that have starred in an animated cartoon, which is how Donald appeared on the Adam Ruins Everything TV series in America. I spoke with Donald yesterday. Now, I didn't know this beforehand, but he knew all about my home city of Newcastle-upon-Tyne. He used to live here in the 1960s, working for C.A. Parsons, then one of the world's biggest manufacturers of turbine generators, which were invented in Newcastle. It's a long but fascinating show. So, buckle up. Uh, Donald, you began your academic career at uh, the University of California at Los Angeles, uh, UCLA, in 1968. And that's a year or two before the bike boom started. So were you ahead of the curve because you were already cycling to campus, weren't you? Uh, yes, I think uh, you know, most people in, 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 in universities are used to bicycling. Um, and I was um, uh, intrigued by your, your comments on the, the bike boom, and I really don't remember it at all. Uh, I, <laughs> it, 
I guess I'd always been bicycling, and I had a bicycle, or, or more than one. So, uh, no, I'm, I, I don't remember the bicycle boom at all. Wow. It passed you by. So, uh, uh, lots of photographs I've seen of you, you've actually had a bicycle with you. So, you, you've carried on bicycling by the look of it. Yes. You know, the first uh, bike I remember buying uh, was a Humber, if you remember those. Um, I bought it as a kit. Um, I bought it also one for my fiance, and uh, I put that together. I guess it was when did I? That would have been around 1965, I guess. Uh, and then later on, um, I guess in '75, or maybe that was during the bike boom. I bought a um, I bought a Schwinn bicycle. Um, no, no, it was a, a Raleigh. That's right. I bought a Raleigh, which was a, a fairly high-end one for that day. And I remember going to the bike store, the very athletic young guy who was selling me things. He was showing the Raleigh catalog, and they, there were the racing bikes that were didn't have kickstands or fenders or even brakes for all I knew because that would add too much to the weight. But he kept showing me these bikes that I wasn't interested in. And I saw one, and I said, what's that? And he said, oh, you don't want that. That's an old man's bike. <laughs> and it was a Carlton. That was a, 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 I should go look at it. I think it had a Carlton frame. It fairly high end, but it had a kickstand, and it had a, 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 a generator on it for a, for a light. I still have the bike, and I still use it. And it's mm. now an antique. Uh, I suppose, and I've had students uh, looking at it. They didn't. They never seen a generator on a bicycle wheel. Um, so you've kept on riding. That's good. Uh, yes, I think. Uh, well, I walk more than ride now. That uh, I, I, uh, I always rode my bike to work, because uh, uh, I was in a hurry, <laughs> and I retired in night. In 2015, uh, but I still go to campus every day, uh, and I still teach. Um, but uh, I'm not as hurried, so I walk. Um, partly because of the exercise, as, as you as you know, bicycling is so efficient. You, you per per uh, mile, you don't expend much energy because uh, you get there fairly fast. But walking is you. It uses more calories than biking does. Uh, so you've spent your your long career linking the parking of cars uh, with congestion, pollution, affordability even, sprawl, and, and now climate change, of course. And, and the Wall Street Journal, I read, has described you as, and I'm quoting here, a parking rock star and the Yoda of urban planning. So how did you turn parking into a rock star topic? Well, um, I, I realize that a parking rock star is not the same thing as a real rock star, but uh, I, I might change my name to Shoot Dog. Uh, and um, I was certainly flattered when I heard I was the Yoda of urban planning until I remembered from Star Wars that Yoda was 800 years old. Um, <laughs> what's the lowest status thing you could study in a local government? That would be parking. So I've been a bottom feeder for about 40 years. Uh, 
but there was a lot of food down there that people just had been neglecting uh, parking, even though it's the single biggest use of land in, in almost any city. And um, it's essential if you're going to own a car, you have to have not just one parking space, but quite a few available to you at home, at work, at school, at grocery stores. There's there are many more parking spaces than cars. And, and I've estimated that the value of all the parking spaces greatly outs, uh, uh, exceeds the, the value of all the cars and maybe even the value of all the roads. But nobody had really been studying it. Uh, everybody thought of it as a personal issue and not as a, an academic or intellectual issue. So it was really pretty easy to make uh, you know, uh, important discoveries. So in your research, in, to get those important discoveries, you found that in some American cities, the average construction cost, not, not what it's worth, but the actual construction cost, for an, an above-ground parking space, and I'm, I'm going to put this in, in English pounds, but it's, it's about £18,000. So what's that? 24000 nearly, nearly, nearly uh, getting on for $30,000. Uh, and yet, uh, but, but that you've also pointed out that that is, that is several times the average net worth of an uh, African-American family. So what does that say about our society's priorities? Well, that's a great question. I haven't heard it phrased exactly that way before, but I think, I, I think, uh, yes, the 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 the, uh, the cost of one uh, structured parking space, an underground parking, costs much more. Um, is uh, is uh, you know maybe maybe eighteen twenty thousand uh, uh, dollars for for the constructing the structure and then there's the land as well uh, and the cities uh, and, and not so much in Britain uh, but certainly in the United States and many other uh, countries require uh, parking spaces for any new uh, development if you're going to build a, a new apartment building in the US it has to have two uh, off-street parking spaces per dwelling unit. Well, that raises the cost of, of, of all housing. And then when you think of all the parking required at shopping centers, uh, grocery stores, movie theaters, uh, nobody knows how many parking spaces there are, uh, but there are at least, at very least, three or four parking spaces for every car. So that might mean about you know $100,000 worth of parking. Uh, Per car, uh, and that 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 is a, a huge amount of money. Um, the especially now that we're so uh, focused on the uh, the, the uh, economic problems of low income people. Say the the uh, average net wealth, which means the, the, the all your assets minus your liabilities. Uh, for a black household in the United States is around $17,000, which is less than the cost of one parking space. Mm -hmm. And yet planners have been recommending several parking spaces for every car, for every family. And I think this cost has been shifted uh, uh, into the higher prices of, for, for everything. Uh, that whenever you go to a store and, and if you park at the, in, in their parking lot, just a, a little bit of everything you spend gets siphoned off to pay for the parking. And it's, a, a, and it's hidden. That's right. It's a very hidden 
cost. And most people think that, well, parking couldn't go up much to provide because you usually pay nothing for it. I mean, even in Britain, I think. Um, so uh, they just can't imagine that parking could be that expensive. But we won't let anything happen in the United States and it, unless it comes with all the required parking. And that required parking is often greater than, as you pointed out, the, the net wealth of a low-income family. Say that the, the median net wealth, yes, a half above and half below for black families is about seventeen or $18,000, I think. So to think of the, these parking spaces are more than the entire net wealth of half of all black families. And yet, whenever they, they go, they, they want to park free, just like I do and you do, and everybody you know wants to park free. Uh, so it seems like we, we've, uh, I think, by mistake, created a, a fool's paradise is that uh, in, in, in a city where everybody happily pays for everybody else's free parking, we're just concealing a huge cost that we've imposed on ourselves. And I think since the, the car owners pay for the parking indirectly, you know, through higher prices uh, for housing and, <laughs> and, and groceries and everything else they buy, the, the 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 car owners are paying for the parking, uh, but they just don't know it. And it really means that these parking requirements are a subsidy not for car owners, but for cars. So we have we have greatly subsidized cars, um, and of course that's led to overuse of them. Uh, cars are wonderful, uh, the, but we way overuse them. But you, you mentioned there about it's, it's the motorist is paying, but then not everybody is a motorist. So there are plenty of people who are going to those stores you're talking about, buying their goods and still paying for the parking, even though they didn't, they're not parking. Exactly. That's one of the most offensive parts about it is that the, 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 even people who, who are either too poor to own a car or they have chosen not to have a car, that doesn't reduce their payments for parking. <laughs> They're still paying it anyway, uh, even though they don't have a car. So, I mean, it's, it, it's not only wildly inefficient, it's, it's hugely unfair. Uh, it's it's really uh, an indirect tax on everybody, including low-income people, uh, to subsidize people who, uh, who who have a car and need a parking space. And many people think that you know that parking is almost like oxygen. You know that you can't charge for <laughs> for parking. That, that that's absolutely necessary. It's, it's as necessary for cars as air is for a human. Um, and the car owners obviously think that way. Uh, but I think that there, there are changes. And I think uh, London was ahead of most cities. Uh, it used to have rather high parking requirements, uh, e even though the, the, the famous British uh, planner, uh, Colin Buchanan, and he wrote a, in the 1960s, he and a committee wrote the, what's called the Buchanan Report that has had a big in, impact on urban planners, but he was the, one of the first people who said that minimum parking requirements uh, shift the cost of, of parking away from where it belongs. Uh, you know, the right person to pay for parking is the, is the driver. <laughs> and he pointed out uh, a long time ago that this was a bad idea, but 
it's taken it's taken about 64 how long ago is that 56 years that uh, it's finally coming around and london shifted from having uh, minimum parking requirements to maximum parking limits uh in the i think the early 90s and the uh, the or later i guess in the 90s or early 2000s that that they shifted to maximum parking limits with the new limits lower than the previous requirements. You know, can you think of a, a bigger uh, admission of a huge mistake that you think that, oh, well, we know how much parking there should be. <laughs> and suddenly, instead of requiring, we prohibit it. And so there have been studies of what the effects were. And after London uh, shifted from a minimum parking requirement to a maximum parking limit that uh, almost none of the new developments uh, ever uh, provided as much as the maximum allowed. Uh, they, they thought that the limit was important, but what was important was getting rid of the minimum. And it showed that when the, the new developments had about half of the amount of parking that was previously required. So that means about half of all the parking that was previously required uh, was, was just not worth it. You know, the developers would not have put it in unless the government had forced them to do it. So I think we may, as we all know, we've made in our personal lives and in our collective lives, we've made a lot of mistakes. And I think that in parking is one of these mistakes. And I, I know that you're a, you're a, a great bicyclist, but uh, it certainly has harmed bicycling more than just about anything else because bicycles, they conserve on road space and they certainly can conserve on parking space. Uh, so I think we, we, we've systematically diverted people uh, away from every, off their own two feet uh, into cars. And, and now I think that, that people uh, are, are picking up on this and, and cities around the world are, I hope, beginning to remove off street parking problems. Just last week, Edmonton in uh, Calgary, Canada, uh, removed all its parking requirements. It, it's such an easy thing to do. You know, so many cities say, oh, well, cut it in half for uh, low-income housing or something like that. Uh, they make a big fuss over one little change, but just making one big change, but you don't have to decide what the new parking requirement is or the new maximum is. You just get rid of it entirely. The rationale, presumably, was... Because if you make this parking requirement, you've got the building, you're going to have to have people in their cars to get there. But if you don't have the minimum, people then don't bring their cars to that building because, well, there's just nowhere to park. So they'll get there in other ways. Well, I, I think that's a bit of an extreme way of saying it, that just because there isn't a minimum parking requirement doesn't mean there won't be parking. Uh, that most developers will not build a shopping center without any parking. Uh, but the government shouldn't tell them how much to provide. <laughs> and I think that the developers will provide some, but I hope it will be uh, paid for, that uh, the drivers should, should, should pay for the parking. Um, and just the way we expect to, to, to pay for everything else, the gasoline and the tires and everything else above the cars, the individual pay for, the insurance, um, repairs, all those things. It's only parking that is is, is is a big part of the cost, but it's been shifted elsewhere in, in the economy. 
So I think that there, there will still be uh, bargaining for a long time because there's already this huge um, overhang of, of, of unneeded parking. So I think what some cities are doing is once the parking requirement is gone, that they uh, they can now uh, have infill development on the uh, on the uh, uh, former on the parking lots that they, but the new urbanists uh, they're called and the, who are trying to re- reclaim some of the better parts of old urbanism. Uh, they, they talk about having uh, liner buildings and parking lots. And I'm a big fan of that, that once you get rid of the parking requirements, you can build uh, housing or anything else on the perimeter of the parking lot. So when you walk down the sidewalk, it looks like a real street. Uh, but inside um, is a parking lot. And then the, the, the office building or whatever it was, it's rather like, I'm sure you've been to, to the new town in Edinburgh where the, you, you look at walk around and the, the, it looks like they're sort of mansions, <laughs> great big houses. Of course, they're condominiums. But inside, it was all, when they were built, it was all gardens. And you look from the air down, uh, using Google Earth, down onto, onto Edinburgh, you see that all of these interior gardens have been converted into parking lots. Um, and so I think that cities that get rid of parking lots and requirements uh, will allow the, the, uh, the developers to uh, create a new kind of city right on the periphery of their existing parking lots. In, in my home city of, of Newcastle, which is not too far from Edinburgh, about 100 miles from Edinburgh, uh, the, my old university, Newcastle University, they had lots of parking lots for their, uh, their academic staff and, and their students. And then they just had this light bulb moment. And very, very often it came from um, clean air proposals. They got rid of the parking and then they suddenly were able to build some very nice buildings where previously there'd been parking. And now you go to Newcastle University and there's some wonderful new build buildings. And previously that was just flat space was doing nothing encouraging people to park and now they just say well no the academics have got to get to the university a different way and they just removed all the parking just overnight and it's radically made that transformed that that university it's a much nicer campus yes i can remember i was a an exchange student um in uh when i was an undergraduate as an electrical engineer and i went to newcastle and worked for ca parsons um and i I can remember the city very well. I loved it. And, and I, I saw a, a really encouraging thing recently on um, what is the, uh, the famous curving street that uh, in Newcastle that goes downhill? Gray Street, is it? Gray, Gray Street, yes. That's right. And it, it was like any other street in the old days. It was a very grand street from, from historically. It had wonderful buildings on it. But it was heavy traffic and parking on both sides of the street. And now they have wonderful a proposal for, for Gray Street to get rid of all the on-street parking and some of the, I think, of the traffic lanes and, and make it a really handsome uh, uh, street that, that is, uh, uh, matches the handsomeness of the buildings on, on, uh, on each side. Donald, I'm very pleased to be able to tell you I wrote that article. <laughs> so that article on Newcastle on, on Gray Street went viral 
on Forbes, and and I wrote that article. So I'm very pleased that you <laughs> it it uh, it got through to you because yes, they've removed parking space, or they're going to. It hasn't actually happened yet. It's it's happening in about two weeks' time, but that will transform a beautiful, beautiful street into a beautiful street again because it's quite ugly now because you've got a, a huge proportion of it is taken over by car parking and i think that it will be a, a, a beacon to other cities or other parts of newcastle here's what can be done and in the united states it's uh is unfortunately that had that is the, the cause of all these reforms but the uh pandemic has uh uh caused us to be uh, socially distanced from each other when we're going to restaurants or anything else. And so uh, many cities of the United States have temporarily removed the off-street parking requirements for restaurants so they can now have outdoor restaurants in their parking lots. See, it was absolutely prohibited in the past because the, the, the parking was required for the indoor restaurant, and you couldn't use that for anything else because it was required. And when they relaxed that, they discovered how much better it is. And they've also removed on-street parking in, in many streets and turned that into outdoor cafes. And some whole streets are vacated uh, from from cars, and they're all outdoor restaurants. So I think that we're, we we need more. Uh, uh, Good examples like Gray Street in Newcastle, um, and I think, of course, not every street in England will look as good as Gray Street will when we reform the parking. But uh, I think even even lesser streets can can greatly uh, benefit. Well, even if it's just to eat, as you say, never mind just making it look good, just actually having space to, to eat has got to be a good thing to do. Yes, I, I, especially just think of the economics of it. Many people would previously say, oh, well, that'll remove all our customers. Nobody will come here. There's no curb parking. But, of course, when they do studies and say, well, where do your customers come from? Only a tiny percentage of them can come from the parking lot, car parking space in front of the restaurants. <laughs> it's absurd to say that that's an important thing for the restaurant. Uh, so I think that uh, when uh, they, they get rid of the often free parking uh, and say, well, we're going to have uh, uh, outdoor restaurants or there, that will employ many more people and pay much more in taxes and satisfy many more people than one stored car, one empty car. How we've thought that empty cars are much more important than people uh, in the past, but I think that that will be changing. And of course, it has huge impacts further on how much fuel we consume and. Uh, how many people are killed in automobile accidents, and all the way up to global warming. That uh, there, there are so many benefits of these reforms. That, uh, there, there's so much more competition for the curb now than there was uh, in, in the past. We have uh, Uber and Lyft uh, want to have loading zones, and, and the delivery uh, vans want loading zones, and some people want uh, uh, 
bicycle lanes in the curb lane. Uh, some people walk bus lanes. There's so many alternatives that uh, storing empty cars. Uh, and of course, there can be restaurants as well or little parks. Uh, so I think that there's a lot of competition for the curb lane now. And it's extremely valuable land. When you're thinking how valuable the land is on Gray Street, I'm sure, or, or in any city. That to think that its its main use is is storing empty cars uh, for free. Uh, we made a huge mistake. I think New York is the city that makes the the biggest mistake. That they uh, estimate that there are three billion uh, curb spaces in New York City. It's it's about the size of. Uh, and London has about the same number of spaces, I've heard, about 3 million. But it, it, in, in New York City, that only 3% of them are metered. Um, and so 97% of them are free. So that makes parking a nightmare because they're always cruising. You know, you, you, you don't want to, you don't want to drive it. If you have a curb parking space, you don't want to leave it because you won't get it when you come back. So isn't um, it, you've, 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 You've uh, worked out that it's about thirty percent of the traffic in Manhattan is basically people cruising for parking. Well, in some areas, I'm sure it's a hundred percent, and in many areas, it's probably zero percent. I mean, that thirty percent was uh, as a, a meme <laughs> that, that uh, it, it, it's. It, that some people think that means that 30% of all traffic is cruising for parking because I found that as the result of a number of studies. But you only study cruising where it's happening. Uh, and in most of the areas, that's not happening at all. But uh, it, I estimate that in New York City, if they charge just $5.50 a day for on-street parking, which is the, the, the price of a round trip uh, on the subway, uh, if you charge five fifty a day in New York, where there's some of the, some of the most valuable land on earth, just five fifty a day for a parking space, that would yield six billion dollars a year, and that is equal to the total fare payments on all public transit in New York. So the subsidy for cars <laughs> is equal to everything that all the transit riders pay. Uh, so I think that if we if we begin to realize that the, the, this curb space has many alternatives other than uh, storing empty cars, we'll, 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 this, the world will be looking more like what I hope Ray Street will start looking like than it will look like what Ray Street looks like now. So keeping on that kind of topic of the pressure on the curb, the modern Ford Mustang is 61% larger than the original uh, Ford Mustang. It's the same for the Mini Cooper, the Range Rover. Cars are getting longer and longer, fatter and fatter. Will there come a time, do you think, when some cars, and I'm, I'm especially thinking about SUVs here, just get too big to park in cities, or we're going to have to just expand these, you know, the the the, the markings for 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 where people can park? You're going to have to just make them bigger because the modern car is just getting massive. Well, that's happened over, you know, slowly over a, a long time. And as you say, that, that whether parking works, not just the number of spaces you have, but how wide they have to be and how long they have to be. Uh, and the, 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 the required sizes of the parking spaces have been growing. So, and, and yet they're still all free. So, I mean, it's this usual thing is that if you're, uh, 
that you're gaining weight, that uh, you, 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 you buy a, a bigger pants. <laughs> but the, the cities have said they're just forcing the, everybody to provide a, a bigger wardrobe for all of these cars, that the drivers pay nothing on extra parking, except it does happen in some places, I think certainly in London and, um, and some places in in uh, Switzerland is that they uh, measure the length of the car uh, as it comes in, you know, with laser uh, uh, beams and that uh, measure the length of the car and then uh, tell you, direct you to the space that's appropriate for the size of your car. <laughs> you know, if your car is very long, then, then follow the, these, the, these lines. And if you're a small car, follow that line. And, you, and the big cars pay more. So I think it, mm. it's only sensible for bigger cars to pay for uh, higher prices because they're using more land. Uh, so mm. but that, that's the kind of technology that is now uh, available that, uh, you know, why should a, uh, a, a tiny car <laughs> uh, pay as much as, as uh, well, with the example I used, and you could do this for curb parking as well, uh, the, 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 uh, the length of your car determines how much you will pay for parking at the curb. It makes sense because when you buy more food in a shop, you're paying more money. So anything that you, you, you consume more of, you, you obviously always pay more. So if you're consuming more space, then of course you should pay more. Yes, yeah, and, it, and it will encourage you to, 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 uh, to buy a shorter car. Or, uh, the, the length is very strongly correlated with width. So it's, uh... it's kind of like the window, the window tax of like the 18th century, and that, that's why people brick their windows up because well, they'd pay less tax. So if you charge people more money for their parking, they will do what you've just said. They will get a smaller car. I think so, and a, a much more fuel-efficient car, because I think this this uh, extra long Rolls Royce got something like eight, eight miles to the gallon. <laughs> and, the, and the smart car got 50 miles to the gallon or something like that. And they, of course, then the emissions are also uh, related to that as well. So I think it, it has a... I think we have short-circuited the, the the price system when it comes to parking. You know, we expect to pay for just about everything that we buy. It seems like it's so natural, but it also seems natural to park free. You know, because we've been doing it for so long, um, and therefore it's it's hard to figure out how do you create political support for these charges. And I think one way to do it is to um, uh, have these discounts for city city residents. After all, the city residents were already paying taxes to the city, and, uh, uh, and I think that it will, yes, it will encourage people to shop closer to home. Uh, it encourage people in Newcastle to shop in Newcastle. Uh, I think that uh, you know the, the reason why I think I, I said I, I've been a bottom feeder is because we do so many things so wrong about parking, it's very easy to think of, of new ideas and, and get them implemented. I mean, a lot of reforms are happening around the world that uh, many cities are reforming. So Mexico City uh, recently went from uh, minimum parking requirements to maximum parking limits uh, with an interesting twist that if you anything above 
half of the maximum that you provide, you have to pay a fee to the city to pay to subsidize public transit. So it, so it's a soft maximum in the sense that up to 50% of the maximum you, you, you could build it. Above 50% of the maximum, you have to pay a fee and then a when you get to the maximum, you can't provide any more. Well, you mentioned uh, money there and how expensive things are. So talking about uh, money, uh, this podcast is paid for uh, by a show sponsor. So I'd now like to go across to David, my colleague, and he'll give us a, a, a short commercial interlude. Hey, Carlton, thanks so much. And it's it's always my pleasure to talk about our advertiser. This is a longtime loyal advertiser. You all know who I'm talking about. It's Jensen USA at jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. I've been telling you for years now, years, that Jensen is the place where you can get a great selection of every kind of product that you need for your cycling lifestyle at amazing prices. And what really sets them apart, because of course there's lots of online retailers out there, but what really sets them apart is their unbelievable support. When you call and you've got a question about something, you'll end up talking to one of their gear advisors. And these are cyclists. I've been there. I've seen it. These are folks who who ride their bikes to and from work. These are folks who ride at lunch, who go out on group rides after work because they just enjoy cycling so much. Uh, and, and so you know that when you call, you'll be talking to somebody who has knowledge of the products that you're calling about. If you're looking for a new bike, whether it's a mountain bike, a road bike, a gravel bike, a fat bike, what are you looking for? Go ahead and check them out. Jensen USA, they are the place where you will find everything you need for your cycling lifestyle. It's jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. We thank them so much for their support and we thank you for supporting Jensen USA. All right, Carlton, let's get back to the show. Uh, So thanks, David. And we're back with episode 250. It's a special episode, episode 250 of the Spokesman podcast. And I'm talking uh, with the legendary urban economist, uh, Donald Shoup. Uh, Donald, um, we've been talking about um, uh, minimums uh, that cities have been imposing um, uh, down the years. Now, famously, Walmart uh, car parks, I don't know if it's in the UK, but certainly in the US, they're built to accommodate the parking that'll occur on, say, Thanksgiving or Christmas Eve. And they're never meant to be that full the rest of the, the year. It's just on those peak periods. So is that something that tweaking planning codes, those parking minimums, can 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 that be fixed by cent- uh, by local government? Yes, it, it can be fixed by stop shooting yourself in the foot. It's the cities that are making these requirements, most most uh, uh, Walmarts and, and things like that, they provide what the city requires. Uh, and if the city stop requiring it, that Walmart could could expand their 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 buildings if they want. Or they could provide uh, what they what they sometimes do is they have auxiliary things on the periphery of the, of the lot, because that's where nobody wants to park and where the longest walk from the, from the, uh, from your car to the, to the, to the Walmart or, or anything like the Walmart. If they allow them to um, have restaurants around the periphery or housing around the periphery or something else that now they cannot do that. It's not Walmart's fault. It's the city's fault. They're the ones that say you cannot open a store in this town unless you have 
five spaces per thousand square feet. And that's the, the typical requirement for something like a, a Walmart, which means that the parking lot is bigger than the Walmart. Because quite apart from the fact that it encourages motoring when you, you have lots of free parking, just the very fact there's all this massive uh, square footage of asphalt is bad for runoff, bad for all sorts of different things. So all of this, this uh, so much asphalt around is bad for the planet. Yes, parking requirements make parking better, but they make everything else worse. There's no good that comes from parking requirements other than the fact that people can park free on the day before Christmas or in the week before Christmas. Uh, As they say, uh, 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 speaking about churches, you don't build your church for Easter Sunday. Uh, that would be just, just so absurd to think that, well, we have to have space where everybody wants to come on Easter Sunday. Well, you shouldn't build your parking lots that way either. Um, except that cities now require you know, parking for any church. I mean, you cannot open a church unless you have the amount of required parking. <laughs> uh, you can't do anything without the required parking. You know, one way to say it is that the, that the, uh, uh, First, the developer has to build the parking, and then the city lets them build something to finance the parking. It used to be that architecture, they say that form follows function or form follows uh, fashion or form follows finance. Really, form follows parking requirements. (laughs) They've so twisted the cities out of any reasonable shape. Um, that when we getting rid of the parking requirements will do a lot of work. And it's been very controversial in parts of uh, Britain as well, but certainly in the United States. But it is happening. See, I think, uh, uh, let's see if I get the, the chronology right. So when, when the high cost of free parking was published in 2005, it was the... Uh, introduced by the American Planning Association at their annual conference in San Francisco. They had a big event for it. Um, and uh, at that time, uh, you know, half the planning profession thought I was crazy, and the other half thought I was daydreaming. Because I said, well, I have these three ideas. One is to charge the right price for on-street parking, to produce one or two open spaces on, on every block so that nobody can say there's a shortage of parking. It's the station charge the lowest price they can charge and still have one or two open spaces because that's what drivers want to see. You want to see a space waiting for you. And then if you do that, you can remove the off-street parking requirements because nobody can say there's a shortage of parking because they see um, open spaces wherever they go. Um, and to make that politically popular, you should spend the money on public services on the metered streets. So that some cities, when they've started charging for parking, they put up signs on the meters saying, you know, your meter money makes a difference or turning small change into big changes. It goes for, for sidewalks and street trees and things, things you can see that people ought to know that the parking meters are paying for cleaning the sidewalks every night. Uh, and repairing them, getting rid of graffiti overnight. See, the parking money can easily pay for that. So, so those are the three things that I recommended. And this, it, it seemed kind of you know utopian to them, but 
the American Planning Association went back to San Francisco last year. This was what I guess 15, 14 years later. They had their convention. They also had another event for, for the high cost of free parking. And during those 14 years, San Francisco had totally removed all parking requirements. It had started charging market price prices for curb parking, variable by time of day and from one street to the other. What had seemed crazier utopian in 2005 was already being done in 2019. And nobody really noticed it. You know, I think that, that it, isn't, it, it won't lead to a big change right away. That uh, uh, I think, but it will lead to a, a huge change over time if cities adopt these three policies. Wasn't Pasadena one of the first cities to take up one of your ideas and then charge for parking? And then, yes, then, and and then the, made their, their city, their, the old part of their city, much nicer. Yes, I think it's the, the poster child of parking benefit districts, which is the name I gave to charging for parking and spending the money on the neighborhoods. That, they, that it was a, uh, uh, Pasadena uh, was a, a very uh, uh, upscale, fashionable town of the 19th century and early 20th century that uh, people came from all over the country to enjoy the climate there and built a lot of nice houses. And it was a beautiful downtown. Uh, but then uh, the Depression came and, uh, and then World War II and nothing had been built. And then after the World War II, that the uh, people began buying cars and old Pasadena, which was a beautiful downtown, was no longer fashionable because they didn't have enough parking. Um, there were there, you know, there were uh, stores on all the, the lots <laughs> and very little parking, and it it, it really decayed to it was, uh, uh, you know really it was in the depths for a city. Uh, people thought it would never recover, uh, but they had uh, ambitious visionary people who said, well, the, the, this this. Well, rather like Gray Street in, 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 in Newcastle, that the, this this street could be wonderful, uh, but we don't have the money for it. They want to rebuild all of the sidewalks. They want to convert all of the alleys uh, into pedestrian ways and plant street trees and have uh, historic street furniture and street lights and things like that. They really knew what they wanted, uh, uh, and they have wonderful buildings in terrible condition. And they didn't have any way to pay for it. And then they made the case that if we put in parking meters, that it'll pay for all these things that you want. We'll rebuild all of your sidewalks. We will clean all of the alleys and plant street trees and put the wires underground. And it transformed the area from a, a, a commercial slum into one of the most popular places in Southern California. Two hundred thousand people just come on a weekend, walking around to enjoy a place that nobody would go to uh, thirty or forty years ago. So I think that that you know these three reforms taken together is that uh, allowing restaurants to open without any parking, and, uh, charging the right price of the curb, and spending the money wisely can improve many cities, many cities. But I think that if you Put the meter money into the general fund. Uh, you know, it just goes straight to the city. Nobody. That's like sending the money to Mars 
or, or paying for the war in Afghanistan. You know, nobody will say, oh, I see why parking meters are a good idea. <laughs> because it won't make any difference on the street, except it will reduce the cruising and, and, uh, and air pollution and things like that. But you know, I, think that, I think that these three ideas taken together are, are appealing to people. I mean, here I'm being interviewed by somebody from Newcastle. <laughs> here I am in Los Angeles. And uh, I think if, it, if these ideas weren't catching on, I don't think you'd be interviewed. You'd be that What I know about Pasadena, and I've, I've written about it before, even though I'm from Newcastle, you're from Los Angeles, is, uh, I don't know if you've seen this before, but the, the California cycleway. So the, the elevated wooden cycleway that was built in Pasadena. It was meant to go from Pasadena down through the Arroyo Seca down to, to Los Angeles. And they only built one part of it yes. and it didn't really go anywhere. Uh, so eventually it was just brought down and just made into a, a, a trolley line and then eventually into the Arroyo Seco Parkway uh, took over uh, that particular route. But that was when Pasadena was um, a very popular place to go and uh, be. And then obviously it's had a, a long time where it's not such a nice place. But then by making your reform, parking reforms, they've made it into a nice place again. Not just a nice place, but a spectacular place. Of course, not every, not every neighborhood could do this because they had wonderful buildings that were from the uh, early 20th century. And I think what I have recommend, what I would recommend for, for that part of the world, and I think maybe it would help in a lot of parts of, of of uh, older parts of Newcastle and other English cities is to have permit parking. Uh, I'm sure you like they have in London, but a different kind of, from the one in London um, is that you would only sell permits equal to the number of, of, uh, uh, of spaces available, very strict, and you would charge the market price for them. So that, uh, and you would spend that money to fix up the neighborhood. Uh, that you would uh, improve the, the, the this old road behind the houses, uh, and it would provide a lot of money. And I think it's fairer than what we do now. I, of course, London is famous for its permit parking. Um, and I walked around it taking pictures of all the Bentleys and the Rolls Royces and the Jaguars with, with permits on them. And so you're, you're giving some of the most valuable land on earth in London to, to people who uh, have permits. So they paid like maybe a hundred pounds a year is next to nothing and, uh, for what it's really worth. So I think that if in London or other big cities, they say, yeah, well, yes, I'd like this idea of a permit system, but we have to allocate it not just administratively, not through a waiting list, or not through, if there's a waiting list, some people are always going to get pull, uh, you know, political support, and they'll get to the head of the queue. So if you just said that, that will charge the market price so that anybody who wants a permit can buy one. But that money has to improve the neighborhood. And I, I've estimated for, 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 for San Francisco that you could give every resident of the neighborhood a free transit pass if you charge market prices for the current parking spaces. 
So I think if in a city where a downtown area where there are a lot of people and not that many curb spaces, charging for the curb spaces could pay for a free transit pass for everybody in the neighborhood. And that would that would be a different thing to offer residents. You say, would you like to have this? And if a majority of people don't have a car, I think they would say, I like that. And the minority of people who have a car would, some of them would like it because it would guarantee them the space and some of them wouldn't want to pay. But if the, if you could give something to the majority and show them that this is what will happen if we charge market prices for curb robbery, this is what your neighborhood will have, then I think people would change. People who don't think about parking at all would say, well, this, this is a good idea. In fact, I remember I was speaking once in Boston that they had a day-long convention on, on parking and I spoke in the morning and they, uh, they had a luncheon speaker who didn't, who was a smart politician, but she didn't know anything about parking. And she said very astute things. She said, if you want to have parking reforms, don't mention parking. Just ask people what they would like to have and then say, well, here's a way to pay for it. It's up to you. And so when they do that, I think it's happened in Pittsburgh, is that you find out what people want, and they say, well, here's a way to pay for it. Uh, so I, and then with a historic fabric, I mean, think of Durham or, uh, well, uh, Newcastle, that for the, the number of curb spaces is so tiny compared to the number of people who live there that it, it, it would be like taxing the rich, in a sense, to pay for uh, an equal public service for everybody. Some cities give free Wi-Fi to everybody in the neighborhood. If, if you, if, if in the rest of the world, free Wi-Fi, the parking meters were identified with free Wi-Fi, I'm sure that in lots of India or Nigeria, the people would say, well, I like that. Mm. I think in Newcastle, we've actually got some parts of Newcastle, car ownership, or people who don't have cars is running to like 50% of the, the population in, in, in some places. So, you know, not everybody has got a car. So not everybody. And, he, and many of the people who do have a car have all street parking. See, when you, when you look at the number of parking spaces in a neighborhood, it couldn't possibly serve most of the people. In newer neighborhoods that are very low density, uh, the, the, the streets are so wide you know, we have minimum street widths now, so that you could have cars parked on both sides. There's plenty of parking, um, so it wouldn't work there. But in older areas for the high density and, and, um, and narrower streets, that the the uh, you really have to charge for parking to allocate it properly. So the the concept we were mentioning there about you know the revenues from parking uh, being used for a public good that that's basically Georgian. That's a, a Georgian concept. So that's a, a, basically the ideas of Henry George and his flat tax ideas. So tell us a, a little bit about that and, and how you're a Georgian. Well, I think Henry George uh, was a 19th century economist and, and a reformer, early 20th century economist. He thought all taxes should be on land uh, because uh, – the, the land is not going to move away if you tax it, and the land rents are really not earned income. 
Uh, I think it appeals to a lot of economists because better than other taxes, it doesn't discourage uh, enterprise uh, and it encourages people to uh, uh, develop uh, empty land. You wouldn't leave sites empty if you were paying high taxes on it. And if you built a building on it, your taxes wouldn't go up. So he thought that it would uh, really uh, uh, completely enliven the economy because the landowners that he and other people said who grow rich in their sleep <laughs> would would instead uh, think of well how can I make better use of my land? Can I convert this from a gas from a gas station into an apartment building or a parking lot into an apartment building? But he, his ideas have, have have never really succeeded politically. So what? What is different between my idea and, and, and the, the, the full bore Henry Georgeism is that he thought that all the money should go to the, the general government. It really disappeared. And it'd be, in general, it'd be good because it pay for education and, uh, and um, public transportation and things like that. But it really would disappear from the neighborhood. So I think that if you say that we charge for the land, and make it very clear to the residents that if you adopt this policy of charging for the land, you will get more for your neighborhood. They would sort of try to appeal to individuals' self-interest, that they they can see that our neighborhood can be better. We can all get free Wi-Fi, we can all get free transit passes, or we can get wider sidewalks or whatever we want. It, it shouldn't come from top down. It should come from bottom up. You should ask them, what, what does the neighborhood want? So I think that uh, it, it would be the land would be producing revenue. And it's uh, it wouldn't be all land, obviously, but the, the curb lane in the, in the United States is, is uh, about Oh, around eight percent of all the land inside the block. If you look at the, if you look at a block with four sides, that the, uh, typically that the curb, the land in the or in the curb lane is about eight percent of the land inside the block. So it would be sort of um, uh, putting your, you know, putting your toe into the <laughs> into the ocean of Henry George's. I'm just saying, well, let's try seeing how charging for parking works. And it's not a tax. Uh, Henry George recommended a tax on the value of land. And if you charge a driver for parking, that's not a tax. That's a user fee. Just like if you, if you uh, uh, eat at a restaurant. It's not, the, the bill you get in the restaurant is not a tax. <laughs> it's, it's a user fee. So I think that the, the, the difference between what I'm proposing and what Henry George proposed is he wanted a tax on all land and he wanted the money to go to the general government. So I say, well, let's start with a tax on the most easily um, observed land. And it's, it's, it's so easy to set the right price. Uh, it's hard to assess land value, but it's very easy to say, well, what is the right price for parking? Because parking operators do that all the time, private parking operators. Well, they know how to charge so the right price for parking. And uh, I think, yes, that it, it, it's not the easiest thing in the world to do is to charge a, a market price for parking. Uh, but it's a lot easier than assessing land values or assessing property taxes or income taxes. I mean, just think how much 
evasion there is with most taxes, with income taxes specifically, uh, there wouldn't be much way to evade parking fees. Mm. The work uh, employers in the city of Nottingham in England, they certainly can't avoid it because they play... I know you said it's not a tax, it's a more of a user fee, but they pay what's called, and I'm sure you know about it, the workplace parking levy. And that's paid for general goods. So that's paid for cycleways, it pays for street trolleys. So that's pretty Georgian, pretty Shupian, yeah? Not Nottingham's doing it right. Uh, yes, it is certainly better than nothing, but I think there's some, I recommend something better, I think, than the, the Nottingham charge. Uh, it's called parking cash out is that uh, employer-paid parking in the United States is the most common fringe benefit for that employers give to their employees. And it's a tax-exempt fringe benefit. Uh, so that if you give an employee a free parking space at work, it doesn't count as, as, as income for taxation. So it makes it almost inevitable that employers will say, well, yes, we'll give you free parking at work because uh, it's, it's cheaper than giving them higher wages because the People have to pay income tax on the higher wages, and the employers have to pay uh, employment taxes, social security taxes, and things like that. So you avoid a lot of taxes if you pay somebody with a parking space than with income. So what I proposed, and it became law in California and now Washington, D.C., is if an employer rents parking spaces from a third party, uh, to offer free to an employee. And this is the common way of doing it in cities because employers, you know, in office buildings or shops and things like that, they don't own the parking. They, they rent it for the employee. And they, 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 they pay the rent to the parking owner and give it free to the employee. That's very common. So I, the law says now, that if you offer an employee free parking, you have to offer the employee the, the option to take the cash value if you don't take the parking. It's very fair because it means if you give them paid parking, it goes only to people who drive to work. And people who walk to work or bike to work, they get nothing. Say the most employers say, I'll offer you free parking or nothing. They don't say that, but they say, I'll offer you free parking. So now they, by law, they have to say, and if you don't take the parking, you could have the cash. And so I studied firms that did this. And uh, it led to something like a 17% decrease in solo driving just by uh, uh, broadening the offer, saying that we're not going to employ to subside just parking we're going to subside if you take the bus to work or ice skate to work or whatever you want however you want to get here um, and it of course reduce vehicle miles traveled and air pollution and all the rest plus all the employees said well this is great sort of that people who drove to work lost nothing and the people who who didn't drive to work now they they have extra income to spend and the employers themselves said it was a great idea because they use it as a, a, a recruiting tool, saying that if you if you work here, we'll give you a partner, or if you don't, we'll give you cash. And I interviewed a number of firms. They said the employees thought better about an employer, even if they drove to work, because they thought the, the employer was trying to be part of the solution rather than just part of the problem. You know, most, most of us would say we're environmentalists, and many of them already are dedicated environmentalists. Uh, the environmentalists 
especially if they didn't drive to work, they thought it was a great idea. Uh, so the, the employers thought that well, we, this, this is a very good, fair way to treat our employees. Uh, is that an annual, and, Donald, is that an annual thing? Or could you do that like if you if you didn't drive in for, say, three months of the year, we'll give you, you know, this amount of money? Or is it something that has to be an annual thing? Well, I think I looked at one firm in England and they did it uh, every day. And I think that when, when you came to work, I think you paid, uh, you were charged two pounds uh, for parking. Yeah. Um, but every, and, and people had to use their ID card to get into the building. So every time you went into the building in the morning on the day you worked there, you, you, you got a, a a payment of two pounds so that you break free if you drove to work. You know, you pay two pounds for parking, you get two pounds for being there. But if you didn't drive to work, you get two pounds. So it's a daily choice. So every day when you roll out of bed, you have to say, well, should I bike to work or should I, I don't feel well today, maybe I'll drive or I have to be there earlier or I'm late or something like that. Every day people have this choice. Do I want to have cash or do I want to have free parking? And I think it's, it's a very sensible thing. It's, it's, I don't think the Nottingham charge has the, those effects. That, um, it's a fixed annual fee. It's just a tax on the employer. And the employer can still give free parking to the employee without the cash option. See? So I think. And I, I think it's, it's not a tax uh, on the employer. The employer saves on parking when somebody doesn't park. Mm. So here in the UK, uh, we've got all political parties arguing that NHS staff should get free parking at hospitals. Uh, yet there's no oh. demand that NHS staff should be given money to spend on bus fares or ought to be gifted uh, with free bicycles. So why do you think parking at your place of work is almost seen as a human right? It's something that you've got to be given as, as yeah, it's just, it's a human right. Well, it's, it's most parking policies are based on a more emotion <laughs> rather than on facts or, or theories. So I would say that if we're going to give free parking to uh, uh, people at uh, uh, anywhere, but, especially at NHS, as you can say, yes, you could have free parking, but if you don't take it, we'll give you the cash value. And that would treat everybody who works for the NHS equally. And one of the things that <laughs> happened with the, with the uh, and this would probably happen at NHS, that what happened with firms who had to uh, obey with, who obeyed the law, they had to offer people, the law just says, if if I employ, if, if I'm an employer and I pay you with a park, I give you a free parking space that costs me $100, I have to offer you $100 if you don't take it. And if I don't offer you the free parking, I don't have to offer you anything. But it turns out that in many firms, especially law firms, they're very hierarchical, that they would have, the, the executive officers would have parking in the garage underground and, and it would be dedicated to their name and the lower uh, wage employers would park outside a block away in a parking lot and then the lowest paid employers would get nothing when, when it came and that's that's 
the parking cash out law didn't wouldn't affect that. You could still give the the best spaces to the to the uh, uh, highest paid people if you wanted to. But when it when the, when the subsidy became uh, expressed in cash, they realized it was not fair. To, to give a lot of money to the highest paid person and nothing to the lowest paid person. So they switched to a uniform fee for uh, a cash out for everybody, that everybody got the same amount of money. And the high income people, if they wanted to buy more exclusive parking space, they didn't have to pay for it. It, it, it just was elementary is what's fair. And, um, so I think at NHS, if they offered everybody a free parking or or the cash value that the non the the non-NHS employees would have to pay, see, because if if an NHS employee takes a space, it's not available for a visitor. Uh, that that you have to offer them the cash value that that space would earn, and I'm sure you would find huge differences in the in the and the value of space is given to the top people at the hospital and to the lowest paid people at the hospital. I think what but they, I suspect. Hmm? No, sorry, so what they I think they found in Scotland where they had free parking for NHS was the car park would just fill up with people who weren't actually NHS, they were just using it for shopping because it's free all of a sudden. So it, it's fantastic. So it wasn't actually going to the people it's meant to benefit anyway. Oh, yes. If, if it's just free for everybody, that's ridiculous. But it could be free just to the employees. Uh, or, But I think it would be fair if it was, say, you could have the cash value. And I suspect, I suspect that at those hospitals in, in Scotland, the top executives had reserve spaces for themselves. They, didn't, they probably didn't have to compete with everybody else for a space in, a, in an oversubscribed lot. It's just natural that uh, that the higher paid people get the best parking spaces. When, when Canada, I think when they, I think the Canadian government uh, used to give free parking to, to everybody. And then they switched to a policy of making everybody pay for uh, 70, I think it was 70% of the market cost of the parking spaces. They and after that, more women began driving to work. Now, why do you think more women would begin driving to work in a government office if they started charging for parking? Hmm. I don't know. Well, it's because there wasn't enough parking available for everybody. So naturally, the best parking spaces went down the hierarchy. All the top people began to uh, say, well, maybe I don't need to pay you know, $100 a month. Maybe I could get to work some other way. And those spaces then became available to women who were willing to pay. Mm. When it's given away free, it has to be administered. And if you administer it, it is normal for the top civil service to get the best spaces. Mm-hmm. But if you, if you say that anybody can have it if they're willing to pay for it, some of these top civil servants who live, you know, a few blocks away would say, well, <laughs> I'd rather take the cash. And then in Canada, you know, two male employees began ice skating to work. <laughs> uh, so, but I, I, I think that administrative distributions of parking always favors the, the, the well-heeled uh, and the well-positioned. 
and the lowest paid people get the, 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 the short end of the stick. So I think that if, if NHS is wanting to give free parking, it ought to be on a parking cash out basis that they can, they can, um, that the people who don't drive would be treated just as well as the people who do drive. And that would, some of the people, um, would say, well, yes, I'd rather carpool, I'd rather bicycle. Now we have electric bicycles that they're, uh, <laughs> they're a, have you ridden an electric bicycle? Yes. My wife, my wife's a doctor and she drives cycles to, to her hospital on her electric bike. So. Well, that's right. I think a lot, I think electric bikes are terrific. I would, if I had life to do over again, I think I would have been riding an electric bike. Uh, they're, they're, the ones I've ridden, they're, they're really good bikes. Uh, I think normally I would think if I'm going to risk my life on a bike, I want to get some exercise. But <laughs> if I'm thinking of it as a as a uh, as a commuting uh, strategy, that that I think electric bikes are are, are really a, a way to, to to reduce our demand for for, for parking. Uh, especially if you have to pay for parking. So I think, I hope that the NHS would give free parking <laughs> to the, to, to everybody, not just the doctors and the nurses, but also the people who, who empty the bedpans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if they don't take it, they should get cash. I think the problem with NHS parking is because it's, it's this thing called the public finance initiative where they actually sold the, the, the hospitals don't own the parking lots. The parking lots are owned by private companies who just make money. So hospitals and the government even can't demand hospitals make their, their, uh, their car parks for free because they don't own them. You know, they long ago, they sold them off to, to the highest bidder. And oh. you just, you just can't actually physically do anything with most car parks because they're not owned. Well, that, not that, well, that makes that makes parking cash out even easier because if they have to pay a third party for every parking space, mm. they know exactly how much the subsidy is, mm. and they know exactly how much they should offer to that person if they don't take the parking space. Mm. Yeah, yeah, good point. And so, retailers, I'm going to get onto retail now, Don. And this has been my final question. So, retailers the world over always complain when parking spaces outside their shops are taken away for whatever reasons. And it, they assume that most of their custom comes from motorists. I know you've touched upon this in, in, in an earlier part of the show, uh, but it's often not the case. Uh, so what can, what can livability advocates, what can they say to those shop owners that'll help allay their fears? Well, if if they were a planner, they would point to all the surveys that show that uh, that uh, most of their customers do not park on the street. Uh, I mean, when you just physically look at it, uh, most people could not possibly park on the street for all the people that are in the restaurants and the stores and things like that. That many more people come on foot. But uh, I I would say that rather than um, Make it free, and I know that there's, uh, you know, there are people in Britain who say that 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 it should be free on the main street. I say, well, what it should be is the right price, the mar- the lowest price the city can charge to have one or two open spaces, so nobody could say that, oh, I never go to 
to, to shop in Newcastle because there's no place to park. That if they set the price so that there were one or two open spaces on every block, nobody would say, I won't go there. Uh, that's right. And I, I think I was making this argument in a, in a town in Northern California, um, a, a lovely a small town, Santa, Santa Rosa. That was it. And it, uh, uh, I, it was, you know, I, I, I'm traveling around the world giving the same talk about what we're talking about now. And I gave my talk. I had dinner with the mayor and city council beforehand. I thought they were all in favor of what I was going to say. And I had a big audience at an amphitheater like uh, City Hall. The rake seats uh, is full. And I gave my talk and I thought very well of them. Uh, a, a guy at the, as soon as it was questioned, a guy on the top row jumped up. Out, he shot out of his seat. And I don't think there was foam coming out of his mouth, but certainly <laughs> spit because people were recording from it. He said that if this city begins running the parking meters in the evening, I will never eat at a restaurant downtown again. Mm-hmm. It was so that settled the question, you know, that that's, there's nothing more to say. And that, and a, a city council member couldn't exactly tell him to shut up. But I told him, I said, well, if you don't come downtown, somebody who is willing to pay for parking will come downtown for a shop if they can easily find a parking space. And who do you think will leave a bigger tip in a restaurant? Somebody won't come downtown um, unless they could drive around for 20 minutes hunting for a, a, an empty space, or somebody who's willing to pay for parking if they can park right in front of, of on the block of the restaurant. Um, and if you don't want to come downtown, maybe you'd be better off in the food court uh, of a shopping mall in the suburbs. <laughs> and the whole audience begins cheering because <laughs> they they were the greens, you know. The, usually the greens are the ones who invite me. <laughs> And I was thinking that the politicians were so envious that I could do that. I mean, just really insult the guy uh, and make fun of it. <laughs> but, but I think that if you were, getting back to your question, if you were a merchant downtown, who do you think would be a better customer? Somebody who would come downtown to Main Street only if they could park free after they drove around for 10 minutes hunting for some space being vacated or somebody who's willing to pay for parking if they can easily park down, downtown. Who's going to pay, spend more in your shop? And actually, you wouldn't be losing many parked cars because you only have to have one or two open spaces on every block. So it wouldn't reduce the amount of parked cars by more than one or two cars. And, but it would make your, your, your main street available to anybody who is willing to pay for parking. And if, if you're three or four people in a car going to a restaurant, you know, the cost of parking is, is negligible per person. But isn't this, uh, isn't this, Donald, isn't this just, you're again, you're, you're helping rich people because rich people don't have to worry about parking. It's, it's, it's poor people who won't be able to afford the parking. So aren't you discriminating against them? Well, let's suppose that I, I, I disagree with that, but suppose it were true and you were advising the merchants on what's good for them, what would you say to them? Personally, I would say to them, get rid of the parking places completely and make them a No, no, suppose it was just a choice, just a choice of free or market price. Which would be better for the merchants? 
Well, the merchants would say free because then we get everybody to come. Whereas if, if we make well, even yeah. rich people come. Well, that, the, the, I think it's, what was it? Have you heard of the Stockholm Syndrome? Mm. Mm. The, the kidnapping syndrome, uh, some, the Stockholm Syndrome, it was a bank in Stockholm, is that you begin to sympathize with your oppressor. And I think that when people uh, start saying, well, we can't charge for parking because it would hurt the poor, you're sympathizing with the oppressor that the really poor people don't have cars. Mm. If you're talking about people who are really poor, they don't own a car. Uh, and richer people obviously own cars, and more than one. That I, th If you were going to be an effective advocate for low-income people, I don't think free parking is the right way to do it, because most of the parking will be taken, well, all the parking will be taken by car owners. Um, and a lot of those car owners are not poor. So you're, you're, you're saying, let's have a banquet for everybody so that a few poor people will get the crumbs. I think that arguing for free parking on Main Street is a way to help poor people it is ridiculous. And as a way to help merchants is also ridiculous. If you think the alternative is one or two open spaces and the price is needed for that, because it won't get rid of all the parking. It'd be two cars on a block and that's and that that isn't going to greatly reduce the number of cars that are parked and they'll probably park for shorter times if they pay if you have to pay by the minute you'll 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 probably leave when you've finished your business if it's free people can park all day long or they can park as long as their time limit is. Though I don't think the idea of free parking on Main Street helps uh, the the merchants. I don't think it help, or helps the customers because the customers either they, they won't come because they every time they drive along the street they see no empty spaces. Uh, and and often this what happened in Pasadena, the uh, the uh, they did. Uh, uh, have time limits, you know, uh, a two-hour time limit, but the employees would go out and move their car every two hours just to evade the time limit. Mm. Um, and the, the, the merchants knew that. They just told their employees not to park in front of my store. Uh, but I think that uh, having it free is an invitation to misuse it. Mm. Uh, Donald, that's all been fascinating, and you, you've certainly your 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 long career uh, as the <laughs> the Yoda of uh, of planning has, has has proven this. You've opened lots of people's eyes to the craziness of of free parking and parking in general. So thank you ever so much uh, for 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 being on the show. And it does sound as though you need to get an electric bike. Well, uh, uh, thanks for finding the good fight. Keep me posted. Thanks to Donald Shoup for being on today's show, the 250th episode. Thanks also to you for listening. Now, please make sure to subscribe and to tell your friends and colleagues about the Spokesman Parking... Uh, no, the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. Uh, show notes and more can be found on thespokesman.com. I'm off to Switzerland tomorrow to check out the parkour for the UCI Road World Championships due to be staged, uh, COVID flare-up willing, in September. 
Now, I may grab some audio out there and make a show out of it. But meanwhile, get out there and ride. Ride.